0: The Football Show On Off The Ball With Sky Watch every live Premier League game this season on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports I'm
1: prepared to do anything I can to play in country again Do it then What about your start to the game? It wasn't bad, was it? Why should an honest answer be a mistake? How can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Why should he? (gasps) Welcome along to the Football Show here on Off The Ball. Plenty for us to talk about over the next hour or so, including Irish teams involved in European competition, the champion Shamrock Rovers and Shelburne looking to go a step closer we already know that Shamrock Rovers will be playing in the group stages of European competition. All that needs to be determined now will it be the Europa League or will it be the Conference League? While Shelburne potentially two wins away from qualifying for the round of 16 group stage for the Women's Champions League. We're we'll also taking a look back on the Premier League from the weekend just gone by, including Liverpool being frustrated last evening once again, and they are without a win ahead of playing Manchester United next week. Delighted to say that Dan MacDonald is with us. Dan, how are you getting on? Hi, Will. You're getting ready to head off to hungary uh, to watch fairing against uh shamrock rovers and like in a way i think all the players are very keen to stress last week dan that it was just part of the job done by being assured of conference league football but they're not even looking at this final round playoff round for the europa as bonus territory they're genuinely looking to try and qualify for the second competition as opposed to the third in europe
0: yeah no, i think so although I, I still think it would be interesting to sort of uh to plug into all sort of private discussions players are having. Um, I think, you know, I think they'll be fully motivated to go and get the job done. And like it is, I mean, I say you get the job done. I mean, they are going to be outsiders, but it will be the focus. But I think it's probably a different type of pressure or a different type of thing, no matter what they say, and no matter how they treat it, there is no doubt that if like you speak to anyone at Rovers, um, about the club's vision, the plan, etc. Like it was the, the Conference League groups that was in their in their sort of radar, and they have that now. So it's it is. I do think there is an element of a bonus free hit about this. To be honest, I, I do feel that way. That doesn't mean they don't they're not any less enthusiastic about the prospect of going through. But it's definitely different to last year at in this you know at this time of the football calendar. Last year, like they were preparing to play. Flora Tallinn in a two-legged tie to reach the Conference League and that was pressure that was you know a game where the impact of losing had the potential to be substantial and it was like it was a crushing disappointment for them and there's probably going to be more enjoyment with this you know a more glamorous okay French Farris aren't um, you know maybe aren't a name that sort of would be glamorous in the in the eyes of maybe some people listening but it's, it's going to Budapest to a, sort of play a proper team you know, good venue, uh, good local interest. Um, it's a good tie. You know, it's one that they can really get stuck into. But there's something on the other end, which is which is pretty sweet. And in a way, you could probably look at it and say that if you do end up in the Conference League, even I suppose this is a a, a good sort of level of the type of opponent. You know, you're, 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 that they're going to need to face as the rest of this year progresses. So the more of these games they can get, the better as well, too. So I think it's it's probably all positive, really.
1: Yeah, look, it's a step up in quality of opponent to what they've faced in the European qualifiers so far. They were beaten for Invarx by Karabag in the last round of the Champions League qualifiers to drop into this stage. We're probably familiar with Bogdan, who played in the Premier League and the Championship for a while with Liverpool and with Bolton. I was playing with Hungary at the Euros last year. Uh, They've got uh, Besic, who was at Everton and Middlesbrough as part of their squad as well. And they've run off, this is now four Hungarian leagues in a row they've run off in recent years as well.
0: Yeah, like like Hungarian football's had a bit of a revival the last couple of years. I mean, I suppose it's been well documented around maybe the the, the major tournaments, um, and they've they've you know they were involved in that sort of you know the the group of deaths, you know, in the in the Euros, and also I suppose Ireland played them in a friendly prior to that. So there'd be a sort of a broad awareness that the that Hungarian football had a a lull around a decade ago or so, and even I think club teams were were struggling. Um, and they've sort of, you know, French Fires have stepped up and and been involved in in group stage competitions at a a good level Um, and there is more expectation around them now and and certainly I, I do sometimes find these early stage Champions League ties, you know, year on year, it can be hard to follow the form and there's a real danger of, you know, leaning on something that happened in say 2019 and, and thinking a team is the same standard, I mean, you know, Carabag obviously played Dundalk in 2019. I would have covered both of those games. They were probably a, a good bit better than Dundalk at the time, but without necessarily being one of the most amazing teams that you've ever seen. Um, and I think you know, Farron Farris, for example, like you know, they 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 lost to Carabag, they were 3 0 down at home last week in, in a big game for them, which would make you think. But that, they're not a super intimidating side yet. In the previous round, they beat Slovan Bratislava well, who Shamrock Rovers would have gone out to last year. So there's all these little form lines you're trying to sort of make make sense of and put some structure on it. And you, you do wonder, are they still one of these teams that's still in pre-season effectively, albeit they've had a couple of European ties now to get into the groove? And are they still like a better opponent to play now than, say, one of the Scandinavian teams, Nordic teams, who are mid-season and in full flow and and they could possibly be a tougher opponent now than someone like Ferenc Farris even though Ferenc Farris may be in time be proven to be a better side
1: what have you made of Shamrock Rovers recent form then we could almost trace it back to the very good performance at home against Ludigretz came true comfy enough as it worked out against Scoopy and then Steve Bradley wasn't overly happy about the timing of the game against Derry so closely after that game last weekend but what have you made of Rovers form over the last couple of weeks
0: now they have been, they've been decent, I think. I mean, I, I think myself and others probably would have been quite critical and, and worried maybe to some degree after Ludogorets away game um, where they had a really bad first half. And it sort of reminded me maybe a small bit of some of the first halves or some of the sloppier away games they had last year that really hurt them where they conceded quite a lot of goals um, and set themselves sort of uphill tasks in away legs you know that that it was too hard for them to claw back at home but maybe with the passing of time like the, their, their travel to to Ludigretz was a nightmare I think even it, it only came out probably a couple of days after when Stephen Bradley spoke about the extent of it that it wasn't just uh, that the fact that they had to fly out of I think Shannon for that game and uh, they couldn't get a charter route, so it was all different players and different routes going in different ways. Just, just not the way you should profes- professionally prepare for a tie. And then they also, I think, got to a hotel which was pretty crappy, and they they had to they get they had to get out of it because it was so bad. So maybe on reflection, you have to give them a little bit of a pass for elements of that Lutegaretz tie away, and say, you know, maybe the, the the those factors didn't lend itself to a good first leg display. So. If you take that out of it, I think the European performances, the five other games have been pretty sort of pretty good, um, pretty competent. Um, still, I mean, you are still without Jack Byrne, you know, he's back available now, but possibly still a, a bit to go. Pico Lopez, their main centre half, has been lost to injury. Um, so I'm not sure if we've seen the 100% version of what they can be. And I still think probably, like you know, defensively, like, you know, Shoopy gave them some problems in the second half and Tallis. So they have some questions to answer. And I think, you know, Ferenc Farris will, will fancy playing them and think they can cause them problems. But I don't know. I think, I think there's been a certain maturity in their displays um, and they have started their home ties and all the European games very well that I, I think they're equipped to, to do pretty well here. I, I'm not sure if they're capable of getting through this tie, but I certainly think they'll be very competitive in the tie. Um and then, you know, that it that it, that it should be alive coming down to sort of the second forty five and Tala next week and, and they're in there with a chance of going through. Um so I, I think what you're seeing is and this is always the, the problem for sometimes for our clubs, and Stephen Kenny would have spoken about this recently. Like he he'd be a pretty, you know, he'd be a fan of this Shamrock Overside, but doesn't believe that they're tested regularly enough at home in such a way that they can maybe hit the level that they're capable of getting to, and maybe like these five or six weeks in a row now of European football, it's helping to bring them up to a level, and 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 they're getting better as it goes along because certainly in Shoopy last week, um, what was a, a pretty momentous tie or a pretty important tie, they pretty much cruised through it, you know, and Shopey aren't terrible, you know, they're not they're not a terrific side, but. I think, you know, they will see and some, uh, like they're still alive potentially with a chance of getting to the Conference League. I don't think they were a bad team, but I think Rovers, you know, were comfortably better over two legs and would take a lot of encouragement from that.
1: Yeah, they'll not have Manus as busy in too many games domestically this season as he was against Scoopy last time out and they'll be uh, trying their best for him not to have to uh, pull off some of the heroics he did in Tala. The Jack Byrne injury situation, it's it's been frustrating for him personally and I think also for the club that he was about to come back, they need a bit of a setback and I think it was a groin injury that's put him out in recent weeks as well. I give Rovers are to do well in Europe. Jack Byrne's the type of player that you want to have there to give you that bit of control in midfield and unfortunately injuries have just come at a bad time for him this season.
0: Yeah, like it's really unfortunate. I think if you were having the discussion at the start of the year about Rovers in Europe, what's going to happen this year, you would have probably gone to Jack Byrne, like you know, in the second or third sentence, you know, kind of wondering. I, I suppose like that lingering thing was possibly there last year that the Shamrock Rovers were very good in twenty twenty, um, you know, and and twenty nineteen, you know, the European performances were decent enough. Um, twenty twenty, they got knocked out by AC Milan. But they you know they won the league well that year. And you kind of wondered had they really missed Jack Byrne in Europe. That was maybe was that the missing link last year? Um so the fact that they've ma- managed to probably hit some of their targets this year without him basically kicking the ball in Europe uh is is impressive. As for the, the situation, yeah, he, he came on in Derry last week. Um he came on a bit earlier than expected because Grain Burke got a knock. And trying to speak to people who were there, I think I think he was okay, but I, I don't think we saw you know a full jack Byron, which you wouldn't expect because he hasn't played much football recently so i think there's you know rovers are going to be playing a lot of thursday sunday in the next while um he is on the on his day there's no doubt he's their best player um but uh, you know can they afford to sort of throw him into a really high tempo european tie and risk losing him when you know that like there's there's a there's a really important stretch of games coming down the tracks here their title at home isn't wrapped up either. Like they even they played them in a big game on Sunday, so they need to figure out how best to get Jack Byrne into his side, into their side without sort of rushing it in such a way that's damaging. But God, you'd love to see him out there. I mean, it's you, you definitely feel that even at times in the Lutegretz away game where they struggle. Like there is something about Jack when he's in when he's playing well, the positions he takes up, the way they try to play the ball out. He he just makes things happen a lot quicker for them and easier for them but you need a full tilt jack burn as well too just for the workload that he, he, he you sort of need from the player and those the way they play and jack's position there's a lot of sort of work involved in it and if he's not 100 percent at it then it's a risk to throw him into a game in europe because it'll be exposed quicker than it might be at home
1: yeah definitely um Liverpool, Dan, starting the season a little bit stuttering. Now they're going to be very bereft of options up front for the next three games, assuming that Darwin Nunes is going to get a three-game ban for his headbutt last night in that one-all draw against Crystal Palace. Not ideal. You would have thought on paper, you know, Fulham away, newly promoted team, Crystal Palace at home. Liverpool really should have been up there with Man City at the top of the table with six points. But even at this early stage, they find themselves four points behind the defending champions.
0: Yeah, and like... In a way it still feels a bit absurd to be talking about, you know, you know, ground being lost after two games. But you could see with the sort of you know, the debate, the discussion around the game last night that I think people are checking their natural urge to say, uh, it's early days and realising that no, this can be significant. Like this definitely the standards being hit by the top teams are such that like you know, this can be meaningful in time. Now now look, they only need to beat City once. You know, to, to, to for it to go to the last day in your head. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 clearly not like not some kind of massive crisis, but it's it's just more so at the stage of what what does the result say about what's coming down the tracks as well too. I mean, thankfully they have a an even uh you know thankfully have a, you know everyone wants to play Manchester United at the moment potentially. It's not the fixture you would think it would normally be in their heads, but yeah, it's more the case that. I think you know, Liverpool have gone through well so many times in recent seasons and it's like last season they played every single game that they possibly could and it was an incredible season and there's always that niggling fear that eventually like they, they'll just hit this point where they just have a mini slump you because know, how do you keep going at that tempo? Now, in fairness, they did come from like the fuller performance was very bad. I don't think you could call it anything else. They did come from a goal down with 10 men last night and, and had good spells in the game. So, it's not, you know, they are capable of sort of winning seven or eight in the bounce, and and all this being rendered to the past. But there is that just that little niggling fear, naturally, of like how good could Man City be this year? Like how significant are these points going to be? And what on paper looked like a decent start to the season, they've they've managed to complicate. Like there's just, I feel like there's part of me just just thinks it's ridiculous to be talking about like ground being lost in a serious way, but you have to sort of reframe how you think when you, see the levels that City are capable of going to now and, and maybe think, yeah, this is important in some way.
1: Yeah, it feels different in this very dominant era for City with Liverpool hanging with them in recent years that it's the City team who quite a few of their squads have already won four or five Premier League medals. They've been on teams that have gone plus 90 points in recent seasons. They've just been, you know, winning accumulators along the way. Now, the one thing to throw maybe as a caveat in all of this is that it might not be a 90-plus season this year in terms of points, purely because there's going to be the break for the World Cup there's going to be a lot of yeah. fatigue and attrition probably in the second half of the season with the amount of games they're playing first half of the year but at the same time City have got a pretty deep squad which they're likely to add to over the next few weeks as well they've even got Sergio Gomez in uh, to finally get a first choice left back after Zinchenko leaving the club too Like I can't imagine even if Bernardo Silva was to leave that City's spending and depth of squad is over for this window anyway
0: no, and and it's true. Like I mean, the World Cup is a massive variable this year. I think City do have more players than Liverpool, but as you say, um, they they have a sort of a deeper, um, you know, they have a deep enough squad. Like you know, Haaland's not going, and, and other important players aren't going to be involved. But that is, it, it is sort of an element to be tr- to throw into the mix. And and of course, like City are still going to be obsessed with trying to win this Champions League as well. So you know, post Christmas, if they end up in in a, a difficult run there, you know, and, and demanding sort of knockout ties. There's all these ways in which, um, you know, they 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 can you can see slips happening. And and you are right. Maybe the nature of this season. It's a, even the, the the other factor as well is because the World Cup is is in the mix. The first half of the season is way more congested too. Even in terms of those Champions League weeks that, you know, you you sort of six Champions League weeks, you know, in in a sort of a window that's around sort of three or four weeks. Uh, shorter than usual, thereabouts. I know they they're starting things maybe a small bit earlier, but still, it's the same, the same sort of. there's a, there is there is a logjam there that no matter how good teams are, you might see more sloppy ones like the Fulham day that Liverpool had. But I guess their their problem is that they've probably used up a lot of their lives as regards that, so they need to be perfect around the the the, the, the congestion that's coming up. Um, and you want to leave yourself even that breathing space that maybe you are going to have one or two difficult days you don't want to have them now when there's no such excuses about congestion
1: For Liverpool I mean the big change that they had this year was Sadio Mane going to Bayern Munich when he really wanted that move at the tail end of last season he's hit the ground running in Munich so far Darwin Nunes has come in Last night, I think he fell for the frustration and ultimately hits out. It was stupidity, which he's probably going to learn from. But he's looked a little bit nervy in these first two games. I know he got in the end of the chance that Salah played across him for the Fulham game. But last night, he was snatching out a few chances, looked a little bit nervy. A guy can have lots of quality. We saw how good he was for Benfica in the Champions League last year. It might take him a little bit of time to settle. And this ban is likely to probably slow that process up a little bit now, too.
0: No, that's not going to help. I mean, uh, yeah, I know. Like it, it, the the Fulham game, that was weird though, because his his very presence sort of had a degree of a uh, helpful chaos that others were able to sort of run off of and and capitalize on it. So, um, I know what you're saying about the 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 nervousness that was there. Um, I mean, I suppose one of the positives about sort of his arrival was. And it's a bit like the Haaland thing at City. It it maybe it allows them to play in a slightly different way, and they have that option to sort of mix things up. And yeah, there is going to be. There's no doubt that like his his sort of union with Salah and Diaz and just sort of trying to figure out, you know, how to react, you know, how how to run off him, etc. This is going to be slowed up by this sort of deserved ban that he's going to get. And also then in the meantime now, okay, they'll have. You know, Firmino back in. I think next week they said, and um, it, it's going to be back to a Liverpool that people probably know what to expect from them, which doesn't always mean they can stop them, of course. But there was a sense that Nunes could almost give them something a little bit unpredictable, um, and and that's gone for them now in the immediate term. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's 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 uh, it's it's one where it, it there's a sort of a a spotlight on him now that may not have been there to that extent before where he's got himself involved in this flashpoint incident and now, you know, you see Klopp talking about a Milner last night, Virgil van Dijk, I think as well, quotes today, where all of a sudden like he's he's into this sort of Premier League news cycle that's twenty four seven in your brain and that he can't avoid it. So um I suppose he's he'll have experienced a version of it before, but but maybe nothing like this.
1: Yeah, they've got ten injuries at the moment too. As you mentioned, Firmino at least comes back in; he can play as the false nine the next day. Jota has been out; I think he's got a bit of time before he's back in. Um, they've just been picking up injuries at the start of the year. I think you could feel that frustration in Klopp even when he was asked before the game about why Nunes was starting, and he was like, "Well, look, I literally have no other strikers, so he has to start tonight." And um, you could kind of feel his frustration to a certain extent. I was just thinking on City when I mentioned their squad depth already. Dan, what's going to happen with Bernardo Silva? Because at the weekend he went around, clapped all four of the stands gave away his jersey, put out a tweet on Sunday which heavily indicated he's about to leave. Uh, The reports are that Barcelona are now going to formulate a bid to try and get him. Uh, Generally, Pep Guardiola, when he's been asked about Bernardo Silva, said, look, if he's not happy at the club and he wants to go and a solution can be found, he'll leave. If not, he's going to stay. Really important player for City in the last couple of seasons, uh, especially when he's dropped from a more advanced right-wing position to more of a controlling role in the centre of their midfield. A huge loss to City and a huge loss to the Premier League if he's gone by the end of this month,
0: yeah, like it's really surprising because you don't really expect a player that has been that important to a top club to leave at the moment. Just where the Premier League, is at financially? It's just and I, okay. I know Mane left as well, and there is an element of the financial fair play, and there's you know there's there's things that clubs need to notionally do as much as sort of as an a la carte approach to the FFP stuff really in, in, in many respects. I mean, there's the odd gesture that needs to be done now and again. And, you know, City obviously moved out Sterling as well too. And, and clubs have to do a a small bit of, of of that type of housekeeping, but it is, it's not, it's not one I would have been, uh, you know, I'm I'm not covering the City beat, so I don't know, but it strikes me as the people who do cover that seem to have been a little bit surprised by it as well. It's not one where it's been, Sort of at the start of the summer, people thought this might happen because I think previously sort of there'd been a lot of praise. I think Pep had spoken about it, you know, his his sort of versatility, his intelligence, his ability to understand different positions and and different challenges within the game. And you would have thought, with the congestion and all those factors we've mentioned previously, you know, someone like that is um you know is is a great asset. And um, but clearly, he's very tempted by the Barcelona. Idea still that sort of allure remains, despite the sort of slightly chaotic nature of that club at the moment. But uh, it does surprise me. Yeah, I, I, it's not one I would have pegged as a sort of an obvious an obvious departure. I think there there would have been other players. The city people might have thought might have been more vulnerable. But um, and I listen again. I mentioned so I mentioned starting I mean, I mean Jesus has gone as well too. Zinchenko. So mm-hmm. clearly there is a bit of balancing of the books going on there.
1: Which is incredibly unusual for a club to do, because generally, even if you are Manchester City, who have been the dominant team in England over the last half decade, you don't generally, whatever about Bernardo Silva going to Barcelona, where maximum you're going to face him two games a season, in the case of they've actively reinforced and helped both Chelsea and Arsenal by the way they've sold some very important players to them I mean I was talking to Mark Lawrence about this last week and Laura said it's as simple as City just don't see either of them as rivals so they see this as a purely financial decision let's start and go take the 40 million quid sell the other two guys for the best part of 70 million and things rock on it pays for the Haaland deal and we move on but it's very unusual for a team to reinforce their at least nominal rivals within the Premier League by allowing such key players to leave
0: no, it is. And like there's a degree of confidence behind that which is um you know, which is sort of impressive in its own way. Um and, and you just wonder, like you st- I just don't know, like obviously the city ownership thing is so um you know, it it, it it's well documented, like reservations people would, would rightly have about elements of it. And you kinda of wonder, like it, I mean, it feels like this tap is gonna be turned on forever. Um, but clearly, you know, there's 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 some awareness of the need to uh to, to do some business of that nature, and I think the problem as well too, we we would have had this mindset that you don't you don't let players go from your club to another Premier League rival, but the the, the financial muscle of the Premier League is such that it's actually very hard to find clubs um, overseas that can maybe afford. Uh, or can pay anything remotely approaching the same fee, or be able to meet the wage demands of some of these players. And as we see, I mean, Barcelona are trying to do it at the moment by, by, you know, taking a liberal approach to interpretations of of rules, Um and that's you know, or, or just spending money, uh, spending tomorrow's money today, um, in a way that sort of sets an example uh, of unsustainability, which sort of. Pegs why like professional football is a weird industry sometimes like where where losses are just just just, like it's it's what you do you know this is you can get away with it so you do it, um but I mean this is the problem in some respects that there's maybe only one or two or three clubs Uh, of course you can mention PSG and 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 they they can do it as well but like when you have these top Premier League players at top Premier League clubs and you want to shift them it's 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 hard, maybe, to it's harder to go outside the Premier League than it might have been previously.
1: You mentioned PSG. What did you make of uh, what were of very unusual scenes at the weekend, where PSG stormed to victory? Shouldn't really matter. Kylian Mbappe misses a penalty, but then tries to nick the ball away from Neymar to take the second penalty. As it transpires, at least what's been reported by the French media, is that Neymar has become incredibly aware that Mbappe wanted him to go. And it seems that Mbappe wields a certain amount of power. Messi seemed to be incredibly taken aback by the frosty scenes between Neymar and Messi at the weekend too. And then we had the video that a lot of people have probably shared around on social media of... Um, PSG on the break eventually the ball goes across to Messi over on the other side and Mbappé just stops running towards the box and as it worked out if he kept going he could have had a goal because Neymar ends up shooting a cross goal where he could have been there um, it seems all is not particularly rosy at the Parc de Princes at the moment
0: Yeah, and like, I'm not going to lie right? I've, I've tuned out of the P- PSG circus just a small bit um, but I, I did I was sort of reading about this stuff at the weekend and you're thinking like the whole Mbappé about turn to stay um, and the stuff that was reported around it that I'm not sure has ever been denied around sort of his, uh, the sort of the say he would be given and stuff around and behind the scenes. But I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong if they've tried to water down that in any respect. No, I think, but I was, I think, think the
1: feeling seems to be, Dan, that there was at least a kernel of truth in the conversation around that, that this went way beyond PSG giving him €300 million to stay over the course of the contract, that actually genuinely Mbappe would now be consulted. I think there was a bit of a joke about him being the director of football. It's not quite that, but Mbappe Mbappe will be consulted about hirings, particularly that they have on a managerial level.
0: Yeah, so like, I mean, all of which is going to leave you with a football club that is not normal. Like, that's just not a way that it operates. And like frosty scenes on the pitch, when you are deemed to be sort of empowering players above and beyond their station. But then you're obviously dealing with, with, with with players who are used to getting their own way previously or elsewhere or for their national team or whatever it might be. I don't see how this is ever going to be a cocktail. That's going to be especially successful. I mean, it's still, I mean, this is it. It's the, it's the sort of the trade off with football now. I mean, obviously like the whole thing is in its own way, just a disgusting element to it. Um, and yet at the same time watching PSG in the latter stages of the Champions League is sort of thrilling like you know it's a, it's a guilty pleasure to sort of admit that even uh, you're sort of absorbed by it even and even when they fail it's, it's possibly even more entertaining because of the personalities that are involved and it feels like we're just going to be talking about the same story again next year it, it, like how does just change like how how does like are we, is there going to be some story written next May about how they did it And how they managed To put their issues To a side To reach their holy grail You just can't see that happening No I, that happen
1: It's so awkward for Galti Having come in In this situation as well Like I think Pochettino had a real problem Trying to find balance Across the team last year And again They've basically Banked on everything Being about that front three Firing in Europe Because They should win League on With the amount of talent That they have across the team Even if there are You know incidents Like last weekend They still won the game 5-1 They're probably going to win The vast majority of games Domestically and then they have to get to a point where they're able to take out some of the European giants who might be well set up to stop them. And the vast majority of players they have around that front three are functional players that they brought in to do the running that those three won't do. So, as you say, it's a wonderful sideshow every time that they play. And we saw that last year with the fantastical collapse that they had away from home against Real Madrid. I think a team who were a little bit more united and who were working a little bit harder for them for each other would have definitely won that tie. Like PSG were the better team for the whole first game and probably 60 minutes of the second leg but still found a way to collapse
0: Yeah and I think sometimes like you think about the Champions League and it's such an amazing competition that you can understand why that school of thought exists that if you get all these super players and it's effectively knockout football that it'll happen for you like that their individual brilliance will win ties for you and while again I mean Real Madrid is not really a romantic story but the fact that is that when it came to the sort of the crunch of the Champions League last year, it was a different kind of, it was a different kind of uh, knockout football effectiveness that prevailed. You know, it was that sort of you know, the reliability, a sort of a degree of a, you know, a functioning team sort of exceeding the sum of the parts that that managed to get the job done. Whereas I suppose people in their own in their sort of PlayStation world, in their fantasy football league world, you know, they there's an element of that with the PSG stuff, how it's put together. And yet those attributes can't sustain them through and not get a knockout competition because it's so high end and it's so demanding that all those cracks, they eventually just they they they, they come to the fore in in the course of the, that sort of hundred and eighty minute tie. Yeah. They just can't Maybe PSG would think they'd be perfect for a final, but they can't get to the final because they, 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 lose. they lose it somewhere along the way. As we've seen, there's this spectacular implosion somewhere, generally away from home, and um, that kills them.
1: Yeah, it's going to be intriguing to see where they're at as well after the World Cup. If Lionel Messi is making a decision going into the last six months of his contract about whether he's going to go back to Barcelona or what he's going to do for next year, and then where Neymar is asked about where he might want to move to next summer as well. Um, when he comes back off a of World Cup, which would be incredibly important for him in Brazil, probably his best chance to uh, win the World Cup this time around, uh, they might have a lot of demotivated stars in the second half of this season as well. Uh, you are with us on the football show here on Off the Ball, it is brought to you by Sky. Watch over 400 games this season from the Premier League, the women's super. League the Scottish Premiership and the EFL all live on Sky Sports we'll take a very short break we'll look at the supermarket sweep that Manchester United are trying to do in the last few weeks of the window when we come back after these football
0: on off the ball with Sky get all the football you love in one place across Sky Sports BT Sport and Premier Sports
1: Welcome back into the football show. Dan McDonald is still here alongside me. Dan, we were talking about you know potential business for Manchester City in the rest of the window. Their neighbours, Manchester United, appear to have left most of the work that they need to do in the transfer market uh, down to the last couple of weeks. Ralph Ragnick was saying last year that potentially they needed up to ten players coming in because of the amount of bodies that were going to leave. The business started, but some of the deals that they were trying to do have stalled, including Frankie de Jong, which looks like it won't happen at this point. Then there was a talk about Rabiot and Aronadovic. Rabiot might still happen, but Aronadovic looks like Bologna are not going to allow him to leave. And outside of that, they need reinforcement in quite a few key positions. And now they're just going around and it seems just kind of throwing their look at anybody who might join.
0: There's all sorts of names in the last sort of 12 hours alone. Um... And again like you're sort of trying to figure out like where where all these links are coming from and and some will be legit and some will be agent driven and and as Gary Neville pointed out last week their situation is so dire that you know every potential club is is uh you know can add a zero to what they're you know, To what they're looking for because this club is so clearly desperate, you know, it's not sort of calculated signs. I mean, it's uh Caicedo from Brighton as well as the, another one that's been mentioned now, the um, another Ecuadorian player. So, I don't know, like, I, I can't piece all of this together into sort of a coherent uh, game plan for what they're trying to do. It doesn't appear to be, I mean, you, you describe it as the supermarket sweep beforehand, and I that seems accurate, like, I think again you know, you're dealing with the highest level of like professional sport and, and the most popular sport in the world. And I think sometimes you can convince yourself into thinking that this is like some uh some world where all of the people involved within it are like bestowed or with this vision that when they eventually produce the players they're able to say, Oh no, no, this was the plan all along, we assure you. You know, this was this was always it's like when people when a club like appoints a manager who's clearly their eighth target and they say well this was our number one target all along this is the person we always wanted and um, you feel like there's going to be a lot of that going on over the next couple of weeks with uh, the next week or so with any recruitment that's done and an attempt to portray it as anything other than desperation when it's clear that it is desperation
1: it wasn't meant to be this way though Eric Tenhoek was appointed early Um, basically before the season even finished it was clear that he was going to take over Ralf Ragnik was getting ready to exit stage left he was no longer going to be around in the shadows which was potentially going to be a problem for the new manager he was off to manage Austria Tenhoek comes in I think he started a week earlier than planned he didn't even go on the team holiday with Ajax so he could start on the Monday directly after the season he was even after the Crystal Palace game at the end of the year so everything was in place early you know John Murtha had come in to take over the role to be far more hands-on on the football side of things than uh, would have been the case with Woodward previously, you know, Darren Fletcher was meant to be having a key role on the football side of the company too and yet, here we are where they look as rudderless and you're saying it's difficult as a journalist to put any kind of sense on the chaos, but it seems the club are in that equally chaotic state as well
0: Yeah, and I think I mean, sometimes the team you put out at the end of the week does reflect (laughs) what's going on behind the scenes and like, that's, that's not always the case um, but generally you know it, it is sort of the case in in this instance here and yeah like he of course like there'll be briefing and and club positions and club spin and things put out and like when Ten Hag was coming in it was very much he's going to be allowed to be the coach you know to put his own vision on the team but that uh, the club maybe didn't want this all powerful manager because they were maybe going to try and deal with somebody off the field stuff and make his job easier for him in a way and that's how it was certainly pitched or portrayed and um, there was obviously they they changed their mind maybe on Pochettino and and they were going for this type of manager but you're left in a situation now where I mean it's stating the obvious I'm sure it's been said plenty of times like he's been undermined by certain things that have happened and in saying that as well like he still has to accept responsibility as well for like putting out a team that gets done 4-0 at Brentford you know, and concedes that many goals early. That doesn't sort of speak to like a great level of preparation. But then, I mean, clearly the the players that are are there. You know, some of them are there, or just are are probably gone in some respects. You know, they're they're sort of shot mentally, shot by everything that's happened. Um, and it's all it's all sort of come together, sort of this sort of perfect storm that's led itself to sort of a almost inevitable failure in the season ahead and. I mean, football fans love transfers, right? There's nothing they love more than transfers. And in some ways, there be people just loving all of this. You know, every 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 five or six hours, there's a new name. And, all oh, this, is, this is great stuff. But really, um, at this stage of the transfer window, it's the clubs that aren't really doing too much business at all, uh, unless you're Leicester or someone. Uh, that's the extreme version of it. But ones that aren't doing too much are generally the ones that are Generally, quite competent and in control of where they're going. Yeah, so and no, no coincidence, Dan. Not the you've,
1: case. you've Nottingham Forest who are trying to sign, you know, every player that's available in Europe. It would seem at the moment, yeah. spending 120 million quid. And again, this is the case if they clearly identified their squad was one coming up from the championship where they had to add quality in. So they're scrambling to try and get players in. It reminds me of Fulham a couple of years ago when they did something similar and signed the Cannes family nine or ten players quite late in the window. <laughs> that's that's usually a sign though that you've got a very disconnected strategy with your squad. And you're buying to try and solve an issue there. If you're in a case where you're at a fairly settled team, and like Manchester United, while they need definitely players coming in, there are seasoned internationals, there are big winners there, there's big names there, and yet they're feeling that they have to do a remarkable amount of business late in the window here. That is a terrible sign.
0: No, it is. I mean, and like the Forest one is is a sort of an interesting one as well. I mean, I know it did win at the weekend. I um, thought it was sort of some some good goalkeeping. Dean Henderson that. was yeah. Yeah, like he was exceptional and. I sort of feel like, uh, you know, you can't use one win to change your opinion. I sort of would feel that their strategy surely can't work. Like it's it's sort of too, too thrown together. Like sometimes the team that comes up from the championship, it's like a, a degree of momentum and togetherness carries them a certain way. And then it's like the second season syndrome that sort of kicks in. Um, and who knows, like I mean, Steve Cooper is meant to be a very good manager and maybe you know, maybe they've recognised... And they would loads of players on loan last season. So, it wasn't maybe they had the option to keep a settled team together. Um, but still, like, that's Forest coming up who have been... Like, you know, it's their first time in the Premier League in over two decades. And uh, maybe there's an element of... There's, there's a degree of panic because it's, it's, the, it's the cost of not... You know, the thought of dropping out again is so, so almost unthinkable. But when you have a club... Well, like Manchester United, with all the sort of scouting resources and everything they they would have, they should have the best in class in everything, and um, and they clearly don't have that. Uh, like that's that's why it's even more damning that they're in situation. It's not like Man City years ago when they were sort of new money and they're signing Rubinho in January, and and like even Newcastle uh, with all the the mad money that's, that's that's clearly behind them, um, they've they've actually been reasonably calculated and how they've done things and maybe not been as sort of panicked by as people thought they might be. And yet it's actually sort of Manchester United with this sort of quirky model that they have anyway. Um, And and where do the owners stand and and what are they doing? Um, But they're still like spending loads of cash, but sort of in a really wild way.
1: Yeah, did you see the graphic that Neville and Carragher threw up before Monday Night Football last night? I'll admit, I missed it, because generally I tend to flick on close enough to kick off as opposed to watching the full hour build-up. I know some people love it on Monday Night Football, but they basically looked at all of the Manchester United signings that have been made since Ferguson left. So it was like a 10-year basically almost like a power rankings. It was even in red, amber and green. There was two players in green as basically unqualified successful signings and they were Bruno Fernandes and Zlaty Ibrahimovic. They were the only two of the, I think, 80 players that were up on the board. The one that really caught me though, because I wonder is this just, you know, at this stage, complete apology for Maguire on the English media. They had put Harry Maguire at 80 million quid into amber. He was one of the few players that was seen as kind of a mini success of a signing. I couldn't believe they had Maguire that high up and some other players who've been, you know, decent like Juan Mata were in the red.
0: Yeah, I well, I mean, you know, Neville and Carr are tremendous, but um, yeah, look, like maybe there's a, I always say there's like an an English tax on players that inflates their value. Um, and it probably, I mean, I mean, Harry Maguire is getting a lot of, global grief and maybe there's there's, a, there's an awareness of that in-house subconsciously even that uh, they, they don't want to add to that pylon. I mean, I suppose you can break it down. I mean, like he has played a lot of games, you know, and I suppose you talk about what is the definition of a flop? Like if, if you sign someone for, you know, what? how many games did they even get from Alexis Sanchez, you know, for his wages or whatever? I mean, Maguire has played a large number of fixtures. He was involved in a team um you know that that did finish runners up. So you could possibly argue the toss on that, you know, appearances relative to fee and there could be bigger waste on, you know, bigger fees who barely started. But I would agree with you that it's it's a slightly questionable one. But maybe he's just become the symbol of the whole thing as well too though. And like sometimes it's 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 what he represents as opposed to all of his performances, but um, I, I see what you're saying there. I wouldn't disagree with what your what your take is on that.
1: These were kind of messy things that um, the new management kind of fell into at Old Trafford as well, where you're coming into a captain who's not even particularly popular with the fan base, You know, whatever the outside criticism at the moment when it comes to Maguire. You've Cristiano Ronaldo, who has very clearly been agitating to try and get a move away all summer, but there's probably no destination for Cristiano Ronaldo to go to. So he's got an unhappy player there who, again, is on massive wages and who he probably needs to keep around because of their lack of strikers. It's not like he can really drop Harry Maguire out of the team, even though potentially he could maybe play Varane and Lissandro beside each other. But you've got the pressure of him being the captain. Do you strip the captaincy away from you know, one of the most expensive players in the club's history? Like, these were all kind of things that Ten Hag kind of had to come in and deal with, which have been quite awkward at the start as well.
0: Yeah, no, and and... I don't know. The Ronaldo thing again seems to be changing. Like, will he will he be there or not? I, again, like it's. I sort of joked about it before, but it's there's an element of, um, just sort of, you know, just wake wake us up on September the first and let us know if Ronaldo was still there or not, and we can do without the noise in in the meantime. Um, but the Maguire thing, yeah, like there's noise either way, and you don't know. Like, like it's it's hard maybe to speak from from the outside of it that. And 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 I know there was sort of stuff about even Ronaldo and Maguire and the dynamic there maybe it wouldn't be terrific, but like maybe the new manager goes into the dressing room and sort of looks around and says, Well who can I rely on here to rally the people and what is the cost of like stripping someone of the captaincy versus the scrutiny and how will it play with other people? But like I I sometimes think you can't even analyse some of this United you know, stuff, you know. You're you're trying to it's like it's like it's sort of it's sort of a crisis ridden government and to sort of that it's completely lost the run of itself completely. And it's sort of one cock up after the next and to like isolate one thing, to analyze one thing in isolation is quite difficult because it's all part of the domino effect of the madness in some way, if you know what I mean. And um, you you, you just sort of feel like that in, in sort of a couple of years time, there's going to be like brilliant autobiographies and stuff coming out that will give us the the full insight of what was going on. And I know there's been glimpses of it, even Dean Henderson sort of coming out and speaking honestly about how he was meant to be the first choice goalkeeper and they, they change up their plans and, and how things happened again, which goes back to the initial point that you think there's just some really educated thought process here because it's a, you know, a sort of a, a club and a sort of a billion dollar industry or whatever. And, it's not, it's just humans making bad mistakes, which can happen down in your local five-a-side team or something. And, and it can happen in Manchester United too, which is, which is the scary thing.
1: Yeah, Sam Larkhurst actually had a great tweet up earlier on today where... Um, some guys have taken pictures of earlier this morning where the paint was being replenished, the red paint on the Alex Ferguson stand. And he almost said it was symbolic of Manchester United right now because Gary Neville is on the TV last night complaining about the fact that over the last 10, 15 years, Old Trafford has been allowed to stagnate and actually parts of the ground need a serious revamp. And within hours of Gary Neville saying that on the TV, there's an incredibly cosmetic <laughs> effect happening on the outside of the stadium where they're repainting the faded bricks red on the back of the Alex Ferguson stand. So I'm sure Manchester United will point out that they do maintenance work all the time. This was always planned, but it was curious timing just after Gary Neville was talking about it last night. Like It is difficult. You have to kind of, in a way, divorce the Glazers to a certain extent if we're going to analyse what's been going wrong with the football on the pitch and what's been happening with the players. But then ultimately, if anyone wants to take a look at basically the last 20 years under the Glazers the investment has been just about what the club has been making themselves they're the only club in the Premier League who've been uh, receiving dividends in recent years even during COVID-19 they deferred a dividend payment and still took it this year that you know generally they're going up against teams where the owners are investing capital themselves like with Man City and Manchester United. for the best part have been an ATM for the Glazers over the last two decades
0: yeah like I mean as I said, like that, that's been laid out quite clearly by some sort of solid sort of reporting, which is sort of straight down the line, not sort of uh, pushing a particular angle. I mean, those figures sort of speak for themselves, and this is where the the anger comes from. You know, this is where um, you now I know there's talk of protests again next week and, and more gestures next week, um, and and like it's it's part of the the rancor and, and stuff that was there, and I mean, like again, what what can you add to it really? Like it's 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 clear as day really what type of ownership group that they are, they will defend themselves by pointing that they probably you know, they will say they haven't been found wanting in terms of like some of the big investments, but you know, some of them even for the wrong reasons and, and sort of again, it's not like to me, like you, you and at a, at a smaller level, like locally or whatever, like you see different sort of ownership models and groups coming in and like did the culture that they set and the decisions they make from the top are um, as much as they can be divorced from elements of it. Like if you, if you concentrate on having the sort of the right culture in a club and, and the right tactical appointments for the right reasons. And as I said earlier, you know, like it's, it's, it shouldn't be entirely complex for like a, an an amazingly powerful brand and and amazingly successful club to have a sort of a really established, sophisticated sort of sporting director, you know, recruitment uh, structure, you know, but that, that, the, the absence of, of that, and even you hear locally, and, and there still will be sort of question marks around even some of their work, even in, in underage football, where they traditionally would have been so strong, um, that, that sort of the standards have slipped, and it does coincide with, uh, you know, the the, the, the laser years and and of course the over reliance on Ferguson and stuff for a long period of time as well which which possibly was never going to be healthy in terms of the longer term but there's there's nothing original about saying that
1: yeah, the football show is brought to you here on Off the Ball by Sky. Watch over 400 games this season from the Premier League, Women's Super League, the Scottish Premiership and the EFL, all live on Sky Sports. Just on ownership, Dan, before I let you go, a couple of stories are kind of doing the rumour rounds at the moment and certainly lots of reports in Waterford about them potentially being taken over and there's also rumours about that currently as well. Could we be seeing two regime changes potentially within the League of Ireland here?
0: Oh, you tell me what's going on in that well Will. What's, what's well, the... What's the, the What's the rumour mill telling us now?
1: So the rumour mill in Athlone currently, and I would stress these are purely rumours, but certainly ones that are there locally, is that potentially um, American ownership were looking at potentially coming in and investing in the club. And I think there was kind of a bit of a kind of a casual relationship between Athlone Town and Dundalk's former owners previously. So I'm not sure if that's a potential investment from that end mm. and also there was a group who were looking to come into the league of ireland i think about two years ago who were trying to get a first division license i'm not sure if they're still calling themselves the Irish c group or the Irish fc group yes. there was talk that they could potentially be looking to buy at loan as a way of having a, a team in the first division so in fact, if you buy the team potentially the men's team that will give you a license into the league so they've been the rumors we've heard about in Atlone, but i think it's a lot more firm in waterford though
0: Yeah, there's a lot of interesting uh, speculation there too and there definitely was a a good relationship between um, the previous Dundalk ownership and and, and people at that loan anyway. There was obviously loan players that moved and I think in in some deep, dark moments in in Dundalk there was people wondering if the club was going to be moved at loan one day but that might have just been the... the, uh, that, did, that was the, the mode they were in at that stage, uh, fearing all sorts uh, in Dundalk, that was. Um, the Yeah, the Waterford one is way more substantive. Like, there's definitely something happening there. I'm not sure if it's um, fully over the line yet, as such, um, speaking today. But, um, yeah, there's this character called Andy Pilly, who um, Fleetwood Town owner, um, and part of what is now a, a developing model and trend within football club ownership is that you'll have uh, someone who owns a club in England, say, but like the City Group, I suppose, the Manchester City one, but on a smaller level, you see these clubs, um, these these sort of, these characters who own a club in one country, but they have a network in other countries, and this guy, Andy Pilly, he has Fleetwood, but I think he has a club maybe, I think, in South Africa and somewhere else as well, too, maybe the UAE. Um, I'm not 100% sure I'm, I'm right on that, but... Um, why Ireland um, I suppose there is a brexit play there as well too we we see the sort of the emerging talent that's come out of the league and we fleet would have recently signed promise Oma share from from Bose so they're aware of it I think there's clubs who maybe wouldn't have looked at Ireland before individuals who wouldn't have looked at Ireland before probably looking at at that angle looking at you know all the traditional stuff like european qualification and all of that and everyone comes with that ambition um but uh like Waterford have had a, a few changes in recent years. They haven't all worked out in the way that people maybe saw them initially. There's a lot of people who have been welcomed in the door with open arms that this is going to be brilliant, and then maybe it's turned a bit sour. So hopefully, in this instance, um they're 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 turning to people who are in for the long haul. And to be fair to to Andy Pilly, I, I know maybe there's been some sort of reportage about elements of um, I suppose, Non-football activity that was looked into. Um, I can't really go into that in great detail because, like, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's it's not something you need to, you need to discuss some of that mm. with him to fully be aware of it. But um, I mean, with Fleetwood Town, like the commitment is long-standing, that has carried the club through a number of divisions, and has he's been in there for the long haul, and there's sort of no doubting. His sort of commitment to that process. So I suppose Waterford will be hoping that that same commitment will extend to them.
1: Watch this space. Dan, great stuff as always. We'll chat to you again soon. Thank you.
0: Football on off the ball. With Sky, get all the football you love in one place across Sky Sports, BT Sport, and Premier Sports.